from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our text today will be taken from the reading we heard in the prophet Jeremiah for this Advent Sunday. You may be seated. Begin with a word of prayer. Mighty God, we give you thanks that you are our King, that you reign over us with mercy and kindness, with forgiveness and grace. We pray this day, O oh Lord, that as we once again hear your word, that you would enliven our hearts to, to live in your kingdom to your glory. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Advent, Advent, time is here. Time for waiting for Christmas to come. This is the wonderful season of Advent, one of my favorite seasons on the church calendar. And I think this is one of those seasons in the church year that the children really can identify with. Because it's that time of year in which we focus in on waiting and anticipation. Waiting for Christmas. And once we know it's true that once Thanksgiving ends, the kids are longing for Christmas morning. They cannot wait for that day to arrive because they are so excited for the presents and the family and the church. They just want the presents, let's be honest. Like they can't wait for that morning when those presents are under the tree and they get to open them and celebrate. It's a very difficult season for the children because they have to wait what seems so long for the day to arrive. And so what do you do for the kids to hold them over? What do you do to help them, to prevent them from sort of exploding in anticipation? You give them the advent calendar, right? You guys have an advent calendar? Love the advent calendar. Advent calendar, if you don't know what it is, it's a sort of little, uh, little box with, with uh, numbers on it counting down the days for Christmas. And you can get them at Trader Joe's. There's your, uh, there's your plug for Trader Joe's today, I guess. Uh, you can get them in a lot of places, but usually what you have is this calendar with these little doors on it. And each day you open a door, and inside there's some kind of prize, or my favorite advent calendars, you have this sort of plasticky flavored chocolate in there that I actually really like, uh, and those you sort of have every day until advent arrives, or until Christmas arrives. Now usually, when I would get these advent calendars as a kid, on the little chocolates there's a picture. There would be a picture of like a Christmas tree, or a... a stocking hanging under the tree uh, on the fireplace or Santa Claus or something like this. There's a little picture on the chocolate preparing you for Christmas, pointing you to something about Christmas. Now, obviously, the little chocolate with the picture on it is not the real thing. It's pointing you to the real thing. It's helping you uh, wait for the real thing, but it's not the real thing itself. It's helping you wait. It's pointing you to the reality that is to come on Christmas morning. And it struck me this year as we were preparing for our Advent series uh, this season that that's kind of like what the Old Testament is. The Old Testament is kind of like a really long Advent calendar, wherein the people of God are given one thing after another to prepare them for the coming of Christ. Now, Christ is the reality. Christ is the one they are looking forward to. But throughout the entire Old Testament, you get little pictures or little images or little ideas that help you prepare for the reality that is to come. Now, you know the story of the Scriptures, right? We know, actually, the history of the Scriptures. That God created the heavens and the earth by his word, and he called everything good. And then Adam and Eve followed Satan and rebelled against their God. But there at the very beginning, right after the rebellion, God makes a promise. 
he promises that he will send uh, a descendant from the woman and the man, from Adam and Eve, who will come to be our Savior, who will restore and make all things right that they have made wrong. What the Old Testament then is, is the narrative, the story, really the historical record of how God makes good on that promise in the coming of Christ, and how he prepares his people for the arrival of Jesus. So that every book in the Old Testament, every uh, a person in the Old Testament, every promise in the Old Testament, every office, by office I mean every prophet, priest, and king in the Old Testament, in some way is pointing you to Christ. Every verse is like a little door on the Advent calendar that you're opening up to get a better picture of what is to come. So what we're going to do here at Community for our Sundays in Advent is we're going to spend our time in the Old Testament story, in the Old Testament reading. And we're going to see from these narratives, from these accounts, who this Christ is that the people of God were waiting for in the Old Testament and who this Christ is who has come to be our Savior. So today we're going to start that by looking at Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is going to open this little Advent door with a picture on it that has Jesus looking like a king. Jesus looking like a king. So what does it mean for Jesus to be our king? Well, before we get into that, we need to know a little bit about the time and place in which uh, Jeremiah is preaching. We're going to do a little history lesson now. So if you want to take a nap, this is the time to do it. Or if you want to know history, this is the time to stay awake, okay? So here's what goes on in the history of Israel. God gives the Israelites a king. The first king, let's, let's do a little trivia here. Let's play along to keep you awake. Who's the first king of Israel? Some of you are awake. Some of you took my advice for taking a nap. It is? Saul. Saul is the first king of Israel. Good king or bad king? Bad king. He doesn't do a very good job. So God puts another king on the throne, and his name is? David. David is the good king of Israel. He's the great king of Israel, and in fact, under David's reign, Israel is probably at the strongest it ever had been. It had 12 tribes organized into one nation known as Israel. But after David dies, his son Solomon takes over. He does an okay job, but then his son takes over, Rehoboam, and Rehoboam ruins everything. He splits the kingdom in half. You have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is called Israel. The southern kingdom is called Judah. The northern kingdom along the way becomes very sinful and very idolatrous. And God sends in a nation called the Assyrians. And the Assyrians come in and they kind of wipe out the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom, Judah, who is also very sinful and very idolatrous, is prevented uh, from, from suffering under the Assyrians. And yet, there, later on, Babylon comes in. And Babylon comes along and they're given to they take the Jews into what's known as the Babylonian exile for 70 years. And this is a very big crisis in the life of the Jews. Both nationally it's a crisis, obviously, because a powerful nation is coming in to wipe you out, but also it's a crisis for their faith. See, when God put David on the throne, God made a promise to David. He said, there will always be one of your descendants sitting on your throne. You will have someone in your lineage reigning forever. Now, Babylon's coming in, and they are chopping down that throne. They are taking that king away into exile, and the people are beginning to wonder, has God forgotten his promises? They would depict uh, the, the, the throne of David, the reign of David and his family, like a very strong tree. It was a strong tree with deep roots and fruitful branches, this powerful, mighty tree. And it gave them comfort and hope to think 
of David's reign this way, to think of God's promises to David in that image. But now in comes Babylon, and what are they doing? They're chopping down the tree. So the people began to wonder, can we still trust this God? What are we to do if God is taking his promises away from us? Has he forgotten us? Is there any hope? So you have national upheaval, you have people in a crisis of faith, and into the midst of all of that uncertainty comes the preacher Jeremiah. Jeremiah comes along, and he comes with an incredible promise of comfort. He says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel, to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will bring a righteous branch to spring up for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. God's people, they had abandoned they had sinned against their God. They had turned on their God. And yet God's promises would not be shaken. To be sure, the world they knew was going to fall apart. It was going to come crumbling down. But as the world crumbled around them, the word of the Lord endures forever. And Jeremiah could find great comfort in the fact that this God would keep his promise. That he would send this king and this king would reign eternally. God will make good on his promise. And Jeremiah knew he would, because Jeremiah could say that God's promise is more sure and more certain than the rising and the setting of the sun. Not only is it more sure and certain than the rising and the setting of the sun, it created and organized the rising and the setting of the sun. I mean, it's God's word that created the sun. So when he speaks, it becomes reality. Even though we might have to wait to see it, we can know that it's true. Listen to how Jeremiah says it. Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to sit on his throne. God's saying, look, if you can stop the sun from rising, then you can stop my promises from coming true. If you can stop the sun from setting, then you can stop me from sending my son sit on David's throne. In other words, you can't do it. You can't stop it because God's words are true and God's words are certain. So though you see the world crumbling around you, says Jeremiah, the word of the Lord is, will endure forever. He will send this king and this Messiah. And in teaching us this, then, uh, Jeremiah is opening up one of those little Advent Old Testament doors for us to give us a picture of who this king is going to be. You see, what I think comforts Jeremiah here is not just that God is going to be faithful to his promise to send a king, but it's the type of king that God promises to send that gives Jeremiah a great deal of comfort. A king who is going to come and not just merely rescue people from their sort of political exile, who's not merely going to be a king who comes in as some sort of like angry dictator who forces people to obey his reign in some sort of tyranny or else they're kicked out. He's not going to be a god who comes in, or excuse me, a king who comes in and demands that people fulfill a certain level of righteousness if they are going to dwell in his presence. 
nor will he be, as the Israelites had seen along the way, a faithless weakling who enjoys making idolatrous alliances with godless nations. No, he will be a king who is righteous. He doesn't demand his people be righteous as well as he, but shares his righteousness with his people, who will decide to gather into his kingdom people from the north and the south and the east and the west, all to gather into his presence and to be called a people by his name, to be called a people who are the Lord is our righteousness. Jeremiah promises a king who comes to give his righteousness to his people. Jeremiah sees a king who is Egypt. So we fast forward to our gospel reading for today. When this king arrives on the scene, and notice how he comes in on this scene. Here comes the king, not riding on a war horse in power and victory, but humble riding on a donkey. And he rides into Jerusalem, not to sit on a glorious throne, but to hang on a cross, not to reign with a crown of gold, but to reign from that cross with a crown of thorns. He comes in to pay for the unrighteousness of his people. Whereas in Jeremiah's day, God was punishing the people for their unrighteousness and exiling them outside of Jerusalem. Jesus is going to come. And instead of kicking the people out, he's going to be exiled himself. He is the one who will be crucified outside of the city for the sake of his people. He will carry the burden of their sins upon his back and die for them. Here is the king who is holy, righteous, and sinless, taking the due penalty for his people and in exchange giving them the credit for his righteousness. Think about that. He takes the credit for your sins. He says, blame me for those. And then he says, I give you the credit for everything I've done wrong. I give you the credit of my righteousness so that we are a people called the Lord is our righteousness. That is you. Make no mistake, you are those you are the very sinners the Lord Jesus Christ has done with. You are the ones designated with the title, the Lord is our righteousness. When Christ Jesus baptized you, he brought you into his kingdom and brought you under his reign so that he might rule over you with forgiveness and with grace and with mercy. All of this Christ Jesus has done for you. Paul says it this way in the book of Colossians, that God our Father has rescued us from the, the dominion of darkness, that is the dominion of uncertainty and faithlessness and doubt and sin, God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves and who we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I love that little word, redemption, redeemer. Martin Luther says it this way in the large catechism. What does it mean for Christ to be your Lord? It means nothing more than that He is your redeemer. That is, Jesus is the one who has brought you from Satan to God, from death to life, from sin to righteousness, and who preserves you in the saints. He doesn't just graciously bring you into his kingdom and then begin to exercise some sort of tyranny over you. No, he rules over you and preserves you in this kingdom by grace and mercy. This is the king that you have in Jesus Christ. And like all good kings, he is a king who makes decrees, who sends forth his word so that his word will be established in his kingdom. 
And in fact, that is why he has gathered you here as his subjects today, so that you might once again hear his decree for you. You might once again hear the words that he wants planted in your ears and in your hearts. It is the very decree, the very promise that he makes that makes you and I to be his people. So he gathers us here today and gives us a word that is more sure and certain than the rising and the setting of the sun. And it's my job, I guess, as the preacher up here to deliver that word to you. You can kind of see me as, as a herald decreeing to you today what your king has to say. He said, thus says the Lord, I have fulfilled my promise to Israel, and now I am your righteousness. I have redeemed you with my blood. I forgive you for all of your sins, and I love you with an everlasting love. As sure as I have made the sun and the moon and the stars to order the seasons, so much more surely have I made you, yes, you, to be my people. So that no matter what may come in this world, no matter how things may crumble and fall apart, nothing can separate you from my love. My word is true, and it endures forever. That is the word of the Lord. That is the decree of your king. And it is a decree that he has made We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are our King, that you rule over us with righteousness and mercy. In fact, we are so bold as to say that you are our righteousness. Lord God, we pray that you would teach us always to live by faith as your faithful subjects, trusting in your promises and eternal life. Jesus, in your name we pray.